You're listening to Universal Learning with me, Saj Mohammed. In this series, I'll be talking to professionals inside and outside education, as well as parents, carers, and learners themselves about their experiences of inclusive practice. I'm on a mission to discover as much as possible about inclusion because I've been a learning support practitioner for over six years and I've come to realize that many of the adjustments we make for students with additional needs could benefit all learners. For example, making things easy to read helps dyslexic students while using clear language can benefit autistic learners. So, shouldn't inclusive practice be part of our normal routine when planning teaching, learning and assessment? In an ideal world, I'd like educators to stop thinking about inclusive practices as another chore to be added to an ever-expanding workload. In actual fact, I believe that inclusive practice can ultimately make life easier by making learning more accessible for all of our students. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you may recall that in the first episode, I mentioned the origins of universal learning in the ideas room created by Lou Mycroft and Steph Wilkinson. This is an online space that started during the first lockdown that uses the thinking environment created by Nancy Klein. The thinking environment is a non-competitive way for people to share ideas and crucially it encourages listening without interruption. In that first edition I mentioned that I wanted to talk about the thinking environment in a future edition so I'm very glad to say that in this edition of Universal Learning I'm talking to Lou Mycroft, one of the originators of the Ideas Room. Lou describes herself as a nomadic educator, researcher and writer, particularly, but not only in the fields of community education and adult education. I really wanted to talk to Lou about culture change, as it is one of her fields of expertise. But I also recognise that listeners may get ideas about how to improve their practice from this series. But effecting positive change in organisations is often easier said than done. We begin our discussion talking about the start of Lou's career. She worked in public health when HIV and AIDS was at the forefront of community healthcare. This led to her eventually working in adult education at Northern College, a residential FE college serving communities ravaged by industrialization. Lou talks about how her work in public health and adult education was connected by the idea of changing communities, which is allied to culture change as a concept. This developed further for Lou as she moved on to educate education professionals to improve their practice. Lou talks about her work on the AP Connect program, which helps FE practitioners to develop their skills and knowledge. This was Lou's first opportunity to bring the thinking environment to practitioners working in FE 
and it began to spread throughout the sector. She also talks about her contribution to a seminal book titled Further Education and the Twelve Dancing Princesses, which aimed to change the narrative around Effie being overlooked. It inspired numerous practitioner-led initiatives as an antidote to traditional professional development, which places an emphasis on the sage on the stage, as Lou puts it. We then move on to talk about how Joy FE began during the first lockdown and brought the thinking environment successfully to the online world. Lou also talks about how the thinking environment can be used to affect positive change in organisations. She also mentions how it can build trust, and she mentions the research of Dr. Christina Donovan, who's researched the nature of trust in FE settings. I'm hoping to talk more about trust in an upcoming episode. We round off our discussion talking about how simple it is to bring the thinking environment to organisations and bring about culture change. We also talk about how organisations can use the Three Horizons framework to plan their future direction. We end the conversation looking at how Generation Z are driven more by values than money, which could lead to a generation gap between the new workforce and senior leadership in organisations. Who also points out that senior leaders need time to think if they are going to develop their best ideas. Lou covers a huge amount in our discussion, and I'm sure you'll be inspired to make your organization's culture more inclusive. But if there's anything else that you want to know more about, I'm planning to answer questions from listeners about inclusion in an upcoming episode. So do feel free to get in touch with your questions via our website at universallearning.education. Now, This interview was recorded using Zoom, and the quality is not always the best. However, you can read a transcript of this and every episode on our website, universallearning.education. We can also find links relating to each episode to help you discover how you can put inclusion into practice for all of your learners. It was a real pleasure and an honour to talk to Lou especially as she had recently gained her well-deserved PhD. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Well, hello, Sarge. Um, I am Dr. Lou Mycroft, and I think that's the first time I've said Dr. Lou Mycroft without it being a joke. So that's uh, quite a, a milestone for me and I am a nomadic educator, researcher, writer um, particularly but not only in the field of community education and adult education. So I understand your background is in public health and in the, in the last few months public health has certainly been um, at the front of many people's minds. So tell me a little bit more about what you did in your in your life as a public health practitioner it's really interesting isn't it i have certainly tuned into my inner epidemiology geek 
over the past 15 months or so. It, and I've refound really that um, in myself. To be fair, when I left Northern College and became a freelancer, I wanted to find a public health strand to my work because it goes really deep in me. Um, probably starts when I was a student. So back in the 80s, um, I don't know if people uh, listening have watched the fabulous um, series, It's a Sin. So you will know if you didn't already about the AIDS helpline and you know all the various volunteering initiatives, opportunities, campaigning, uh, protesting that was around that time. And I got involved in all of that. Lost my way for a little bit and ended up via temping, a temping opportunity really, at Sheffield's Public Health Department. And this was, you know, the late 80s by, by then. Um, and early 90s, in fact, it was the early 90s. And just found my niche, really. I was lucky enough to be, I failed my honours degree, was lucky enough to be sponsored by the NHS to do a master's in public health. And the way that we worked at Sheffield was to, um, it was really pioneering. It wasn't about producing leaflets, though there was some of that going on. I've got a little story about that. Um, but it was more about community development work. And in fact, by the time I left there, we had renamed ourselves within the health authority, Sheffield Health Authority, the Department of Social and Community Development. So it was about getting out into communities, doing community health research. There was a, you know, we had a course that we ran. There was a particular procedure. Um, that we followed, uh, very much co-constructed, co-produced projects, working with volunteers, absolutely amazing, close, close working relationships with the Centre for HIV and Sexual Health at the time, so I was able to carry on that element of the work, and um, uh, the, uh, the, the leaflet producing side of things, they were the pieces of work that I swerved, because it took six months to get a leaflet approved, even locally, even just in Sheffield, never mind NHS England sort of level. And some years later, I went to India on a sort of working trip and um, we went out into the sticks to this uh, public health centre and they were just producing leaflets left, right and centre in about four different languages. It just wasn't necessary. But I think that experience got me thinking that actually it's not just about the work we do in communities it is also about the work we do in organizations and Lee Adams who was my boss there who um, later became a professor real pioneering woman from the east end of London former primary school teacher she was fierce and scary tiny little woman and she used to say 50% of it is community development 50% of it is organizational development I don't think I've ever really lost that balance so in the last year looking at the confused public health messages the um the research has been fascinating and amazing you know research has always been a really big part of public health and 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 getting a sense of what you can trust what you can't trust and but it's left me despairing really about the public health literacy we have in this country. People don't know what to believe and that's because of the mixed messaging, but it's also because we don't teach people how to understand that stuff. Absolutely. And how did you transition from working in public health into uh, education? Well, like most people, um, it was a bit of a surprise to me that that's what I'd done by the time I got there. So I, um, I went um, to work in more field work uh, based public health 
um, in uh, in uh, Castleford and Pontefract in West Yorkshire. And we partnered with Northern College to do the community research. And um, I, I was in that job less than a year, made myself incredibly unpopular because we went out to communities and we said, what is it? You know, what are the health, um, what are the areas of health that you want to campaign on? And they said, well, we want to stop Ponty Hospital closing. They're trying to close our hospital. So we ran a campaign to stop the closure of Ponty Hospital. And then, you know, I found, soon found my P45 waiting for me because that wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. And luckily a job came up at Northern College and, and, and John Chapman, a, a late departed friend and mentor, still miss him. He rang me up and said, there's a job here which would be fabulous for you. Are you up for applying? And so I went to Northern College, which is a, certainly was then a very special place. Um, adult residential college, um, educating, set up to educate working class men and women um, in the South Yorkshire Coalfield, the steelworks and, and further afield. Um, amazing place, Molmolum used to be, you know, the bursa there, a real radical political history. And I went there to work on the community regeneration program. Still didn't think about myself as a teacher. I was a community worker. I had a talent for group work, for working with uh, groups of people. Um, and it, it was so weird that, you know, on my first day, I sat next to somebody in the I want to say a canteen, but it was this stately home with these amazing, you know, wind uh, painted ceiling and everything. And they're discussing Shakespeare on the next table and people were saying, you know, so are you teaching this weekend or are you going into college rather than are you going into work? And then I realised, oh, my God, I never wanted to be a teacher. Here I am. <laughs> Um, and it was around the time that um, FE was professionalising, so it was expected that I would get a PDCE, so I went to do that at a local college. And yeah, I was there nearly 20 years transition from community regeneration. Basically, the programme was disbanded when the gravy train of European money stopped. Um, so by about 2006, I was running social purpose teacher education programmes, so still that community focus. We fitted it to a University of Huddersfield framework, but, but, but that community work continued and the people who came to us would be youth workers, there might be nurses, there would be community workers in various ways, family support workers, not necessarily people working in colleges, almost anything but. And I was there until 2017. As you said, from your work in public health, you'd seen how cultural organisations is so important to the work they do. So at what point did you kind of make the connection between that and your kind of practice as an educator? The people I worked with were all working in, if not their own communities, then somebody else's. And I kept this idea with me about, you know, how the organisations needed to be developed as much as the community. So an example of that, for example, back in the day, everybody used to talk about hard to reach uh, people. I hope they don't do that anymore. But of course, it was the services that, was hard, that were hard to reach and not the people. So there was always that sense of turning it on its head. And certainly when there was a lot of money in community regeneration, particularly in South Yorkshire, it was a lot about buildings. It was a lot about landscape and, you know, greening where I sit now 
this used to be black, you know, so green in the former coal fields and things like that. And people were very much forgotten. And I think all the way through, people have been at the heart of it for me. And that's the great thing, isn't it, about adult education. People are at the heart of it. In regeneration, the people could be forgotten. But in education, you can't forget the people. You might not always serve them well, but you can't forget the people. And I think that for me was the connection. And also, you know, we talk now about a mental health crisis coming out of the pandemic. When I first went to Northern College, we were experiencing a mental health crisis, particularly amongst men, caused by the utter devastation of the, the former industries. So people were being laid off wholesale, sometimes with significant redundancy packages, but no real sense of how to you know, housekeep and manage that money. I remember around here, suddenly every other person, you know, is um, set up as a driving school, driving instructor. We could only, our economy, local economy, could only support so many driving instructors. And, you know, a, a whole swathe of people my age having difficulties with addiction and mental health. And, you know, that, that stuff has never gone away. So increasingly, I started to notice that where people were getting engaged with, it might be too big to call it culture change work, but certainly community changing work, that seemed to have a really profound impact positively on their own self-belief, self-esteem, mental health, and not least because they were working with other people and they had some agency and they had some power. You know, I've come on, come along in recent years to theorize about different kinds of power. Back in the day, I just saw power and I saw it enacted badly against one another as well. So another, I suppose another milestone on my journey was starting to teach people explicitly about power and how to manage their own power responsibly without oppressing others or me, in fact. I mean, I was around this time deposed as the vice chair of Mexico Community Partnership in a coup. So I was learning alongside and I look back, I was so naive that sort of 20 odd years ago, but actually so many of those lessons are, are really helping me now and, and particularly over the last year through the pandemic. So in terms of putting your work, if you like, in culture change into practice, you've, you've been involved in quite a few initiatives over the years. So one of them, for example, is AP Connect. So this is for people in FE and, and for, for people who don't know what AP Connect is, um, what does it involve? So changing organisations, it seems to me that um, if you're at the bottom of an organisation and all too often in furthering adult education, that might mean a zero hours contract or some very sort of you know sessional uh, work you're never sure whether the work's going to continue it's always conditional really difficult to raise your voice to be heard to challenge and be critical at the top of organizations are people just trying to keep the cart on the tracks nancy klein who founded the thinking environment which i think we'll probably go on to talk about at some point sarge she talks about how the higher you go up the hierarchy the more obedient you have to be you think if you rise up you get more power but it's only a certain kind of power it's not an activist power it's hard to make new things happen 
So AP Connect came out of um, the Education and Training Foundation. They are the people who get the professional learning budget from the Department for Education. They started to notice this middle layer of advanced practitioners, not always called that. Sometimes people are called teaching and learning coaches or, um, uh, you know, quality, assure, no, not assurance, but quality improvement leads or something like that. And mostly these will be people on proper contracts, not always, but mostly well respected within the organization, not necessarily on a management ladder, but maybe on a management path. And they would have a little bit of wriggle room. And the ETF wanted, wanted these people to improve quality in the organization in an Ofsted sense of moving towards outstanding. I could see all the parallels with those community animators of years ago. Animator meaning activist, you know, to actually animate, make a difference. And a couple of years before AP Connect, when I, in my last few years at Northern College, I got involved as um, a co-author of a chapter in a book called Further Education and the 12 Dancing Princesses, which went on to be a trilogy. It was a wonderful opportunity to write for these three books. And what they tried to do, and I think to some extent have done, is turn on its head the Cinderella metaphor. We were always the poor relation, weren't we, in FE, to schools and universities. Turn that on its head, that individual motif, and look at what would happen if we were collective. The 12 dancing princesses went out every night, gave the guards the slip, and danced till their shoes were in ribbons. And I imagined these advanced practitioners, APs, as dancers, as clearing space to do new stuff. And that has been absolutely how it's played out. And over the three years so far of its existence, it has really shifted what professional learning is, I think, in FE. Moving from what our friend um, Sammy White calls the sheep dip um, CPD, you know, the sage on a stage, the three grand expert telling everybody, you know, about this new method of teaching, to actually practitioners working together, putting on sessions for each other, sharing ideas, getting real strength and energy from one another. And the pace that has picked up with this since COVID and going online has been incredible because now thinking back to what Lee Adams said all those years ago it's not just about community development it's about organizational development people are able to look outside of that sort of slightly stale ideas pool in their own organization which always gets stale if you don't look outside the doors and look outside and get that ideas and energy from other people and AP Connect is a funded project but it's joined a landscape of both funded and increasingly grassroots practitioner-led initiatives like this podcast. And on that motif of practitioner-led uh, initiatives, um, you've also been involved in um, Joy FE over the last year or so uh, with uh, Steph Wilkinson. And what was the, what was the genesis of Joy FE? Well, Steph and I have been having some conversations anyway. She was um, working in a senior position at that time within a, a big uh, general FE college. And we've been having conversations. She knew that I was interested in 
joyful work in, and an ethics of joy, um, joyful practices. So we, we'd gotten friendly. And when the first lockdown was heading towards us that weekend, she rang me and she said, let's do something because people's heads are down, you know, everybody's frightened, let's do something and let's do something joyful. And straight away, the idea was there, Joy FE, we might now expand it wider than Joy than FE, it might be Joy for Education, but Joy FE started off as the joyful remaking of education. Taking the Dancing Princess's idea of being critical, joyfully critical, but not cynical. There's no point standing around saying, I wish this wasn't happening. It is happening. Let's get on with it. And we started off with a broadcast, 7 a.m., before she went to work on Twitter. Um, the tech kept letting us down, but loads of people joined. And if you remember, Sarge, it was Easter, wasn't it, after a couple yeah. of weeks? People had started to gather around the idea. We got a WhatsApp group together. And over Easter, a number of us who were the original collective, I guess, started to think together. And that's where the ideas room was born as a crucible for ideas, as it can't just be about people culture change. It's got to be about practices and processes too, because otherwise, once the people move on, you're back to where you started. So the ideas room, which now runs twice a week, open to anybody, whether they're in education or not, became, yeah, the engine room of Joy FE. Within a month, we published our first digital magazine and we've published 12 editions of that now. We've got a little group that just that works on the magazine, group of people that works on Twitter. We are now in partnership with AP Connect um, to contribute an ideas room to the AP Connect Festival Fridays. No money changes hands because Joy FE deliberately, no money, no management, no hierarchy. And the people who are part of Joy FE is anybody who engages with us in any shape or form. We met you through Twitter and then you start coming to the ideas room. You are Joy FE and anybody can take a Joy FE and just, you know, spread it out in their organisation. So it is a movement. And, and I think people really gather around that yellow heart and around the idea of doing something affirmative in dark times, because that's where hope comes from. You mentioned the ideas room and the ideas room is based around the ideas of Nancy Klein and the thinking environment. How, how did you first come across Nancy Klein? Well, we're going back now to the Centre for HIV and Sexual Health in, in Sheffield. Nancy Klein, so romantically, um, married um, the uh, CEO of the London Lighthouse, which is an AIDS charity, um, after many years of transatlantic correspondence. And um, it's a wonderful story. And so because of that connection, uh, when Nancy married Christopher Spence, the uh, AIDS campaigning, um, HIV campaigning space was the first place that the thinking environment came to in the UK. And it spread out through centres like the Centre for HIV and Sexual Health. And we all had to do thinking environment training. And um, it was quite unformulated. No, it was not unthought out, but I think the sort of clarity and discipline 
of the thinking environment has emerged over the years. And I, I know exactly when it was um, because I was pregnant when I started my thinking environment training. And uh, once Fraser was born, he used to come along with me to those sessions in a, a beautiful room in uh, the West End of Sheffield. So that's where it came from. And I always practiced it. In 1999, Nancy wrote her first book, Time to Think. And um, then in 2009, just when she was writing more Time to Think, which is probably the nearest to a manual, that's got most of the practical stuff in, um, I bravely contacted her. And I mean, now perhaps I'd be a bit bolder about this, but it's such a massive thing to contact her and ask if she'd um, first of all come to speak at Northern College and secondly could I write a Wikipedia entry about her and she did and that was it that was the start of my relationship with Nancy she made it easy and possible for me to do all the training with her which is like really expensive at a cut price rate and I just went through uh, learning how to become a thinking environment coach consultant in my own organisation, and I was at Northern College by this time, of course, I'd come from a very thinking environment organisation into Northern College where it, there was a lot that was so brilliant about Northern College. But if you think about where it came from, from the trade union and labour movement, it was hierarchy high. You know, those, the labour movement loves its hierarchies, it loves its committees, it loves its rank, rank and file, all of this. And Northern College was built on those lines. So outside of my own team, which ran as a thinking environment, I wasn't able to get a foothold. It was resisted because people didn't want to give up their power because in a thinking environment space, we enter the room and we leave role, rank and ego at the door. And that was too hard, not for everybody, but it had a power, powerful enemies. So it wasn't until I became a freelancer and part of becoming a freelancer was to free myself up to work in a thinking environment. And then Joss Kang, who is my boss on AP Connect, she gave me the opportunity. She gave me 50 minutes, Sarge. I had 50 minutes to bring the thinking environment to FE on the first year of AP Connect, 25 years of learning and experience distilled into 50 minutes, but it was enough. I lit a fire and it hasn't gone out. And in fact, you know, since lockdown and the move online for professional learning, the thinking environment has spread like wildfire through FE. And I think its discipline seems to really suit this online space. It's much harder to fidget, to not give attention in professional learning where it's a reasonable expectation that you keep your camera on. People just really get it. And it's become this really efficient process. If you'd asked me back February 2020, if we could do the thinking environment online, I'd have been like, well, you know, we can give it a go. It's been brilliant. So people are now learning to be thinking environment practitioners in their own right running ideas rooms in their own organizations and engaging their colleagues in understanding how taking a little bit of efficiently facilitated time can actually save so much time in the long run because you think things through properly. So for those people who've never experienced the ideas room or a thinking environment, how would you uh, describe it to people? Well, it's, it, the reason, its reason is to enable you to do your best thinking and for people to think better together. 
And that's much deeper than it sounds, isn't it? Because, you know, actually all sorts of oppressions and biases and prejudices stop us, get in the way of us thinking together. It's very disciplined. It has a few rules, but they are 100% observed. So, for example, it's set up in a way which you will never be interrupted. And the facilitator will interrupt the interrupter. And that matters because when you're thinking, the fact that I know you won't interrupt me, not just that you won't by chance interrupt me, but I know you won't, means that I can get through like just saying words and I can get to what I really think. And then maybe I might go quiet and think, well, actually, or maybe I think this, and you can get to the end of your thinking, knowing that nobody's going to interrupt you. And that's actually a very efficient process. So in an IDs room, they're only ever for an hour. We're never going to extend them. We don't put parameters on them. We don't do a what's next round at the end or anything like that. We just set up a space in which maybe about a third of the people there have got an idea they want to think through. The rest of us, we come along because we want to offer the gift of our listening, knowing that we will get so much out of it too. So we do a round, roll rank and ego left at the door, no interruption, people learning to be succinct because they're not having to fill silences with non-words, you know. We ask people what they want to get out of the evening. We ask them how they are and we listen to the answer. You know, it's a practice of care. Then there's a process of selecting into breakout rooms for around 30 minutes. And that's where the idea gets really explored. So three people might go together in a room because they want to think about trust in their organization or they want to think about induction or they want to think about apprentices or something. So they've got a a shared interest around it and they just do rounds 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 until the time's up and then we just come back together to say goodbye we hit on it as a process by chance but what makes it a thinking environment is that whoever facilitates and that's very open so anybody can facilitate if they're a regular so and the regular is only so that they're used to it it's harder than it looks because actually we're not really very disciplined in real life are we in conversation you know if you start once you start to once you feel what it's like not to be interrupted in normal conversation when people are interrupting you you get really irritated by it so that discipline space is it hold the facilitator holds together all the values of a thinking environment so that you can really bring yourself and that's what nancy says she says you know we all say we're interested in independent thinking. We want students to think independently. We want, we want to want colleagues to. And then we do all these things to stop it, like interrupting. So when I'm thinking, I, it's my responsibility to step into the arena, to bring what I think, not worry what people think about it, not worry what people think about me. And when you are listening to me, Sarge, like you are here so beautifully, what you're doing is you are completely accepting of the fact that what I'm going to say next is more significant than anything you could possibly say because it's my thinking. So the thinking environment is not a place where people advise one another. That strikes such a bum note, honestly, when people try and do it. And, you know, everybody has to get used to it. Nobody's made to feel bad. But just unpacking your thoughts, amazing. And as um, 
the ideas room is just one application. There's a diversity process. There obviously can coach in a thinking environment, teach in a thinking environment, do interviews, tutorials, lots of different ways of using it. Um, but this is, um, yeah, it's been really powerful. And we must have had hundreds of different people throughout FE and beyond coming along to our ideas rooms. So in this series, I'm encouraging people to reflect on their practice and hopefully get some advice about how to make their practice more inclusive. But I do recognise that people have to work in organisations as well. And it cannot always be easy to affect change in organisations. So just thinking about the thinking environment for a moment, how can people listening take the thinking environment into their own organisations and use it as a catalyst for affecting positive change? In a thinking environment, no matter where you are in relation to one another in the hierarchy, you are equal as thinkers. And once you can hold a space like that in the organisation, I think what comes rushing in through the door, first of all, is diversity. We're all the product of all of our identities, experiences, opinions, and they're formed from, you know, where we live and who brought us up and, and all of that stuff. And most of us don't bring all of that to work, do we? Because we're just, a, you know, we're a little bit, I don't know, or I'm a single mum or, you know, we've got imposter syndrome over this or we've genuinely experienced depression and prejudice in that space or other spaces. Who And how that comes out is who wants to hear from me? Who wants to hear my voice? Who wants to hear my opinion? The thinking environment wants to hear your voice and your opinion. So that's diversity right in there. And because you can't be interrupted, if it takes you a little longer to find your words, to gather your words, then that's all right. If you've got a bit of a sort of, you know, my son has Tourette's and that is not the verbal tick, it's physical ticks. So if he is under pressure, then he will like twitch. He has been raised in a thinking environment and he just relaxes into a thinking environment space because he knows that everybody is there, not waiting for him to perform, but genuinely waiting to hear what he's got to say. It's an anti-competitive space. And so suddenly you've got a hundred more ideas than you would have had. And ideas which actually recognize the experience of the neurodivergent student, of the student of color, of the single mum over here, because we've got all those identities in the room, they're just not necessarily expressed. And then we start to think about, well, what's the absent identities? Which voices are we not hearing in this decision-making space? I used to teach parent support workers. They use the word parent interchangeably with the word mum. Well, where were the dads, you know? So thinking about that, I mean, 10 components are present in, a, in an ideas room. But for me, diversity is the one that most gets heard that would not get heard elsewhere. And that is the start of culture change because it builds relationships. It brings a calmness to proceedings as well. Um, we're not in a panic and scarcity environment in a thinking environment. Out there, colleges, they're all about panic and scarcity, aren't they? Not enough money, not enough time, da-da-da, too much marking, da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. 
with that noise going on, how can you think you just carves out this time limited space where people can do that thinking? It makes, I think, decisions are braver and are more measured. It's easier to be risk positive because you've actually taken time to think things through. But most of all, what I'm getting to here, Sarge, is these thinking environment spaces, these ideas rooms and other ways, they build trust. And trust, being trust forward is what our organisations need to change cultures because there is very little trust in many hierarchies. I've nothing against a chain of command. I've worked in a hospital, A&E, you know, you need to know who's in charge, you need to know who you're taking your orders from. We don't have to operate like that in FE. And so we begin to build trust. And I work really closely with the wonderful trust researcher, Christina Donovan, her work is in FE as well. And when Christina and I sat down to talk about what builds community and what builds trust, it turned out to be exactly the same things. Do something different, like introducing a thinking environment. People will start to unify around that. And in thinking together, they will begin to thrive. And it's in that thriving that brings hope and the, the courage, I think, to try new things. So it is a simple intervention that doesn't cost anything except an hour and a bit of training, you know, um, which can have really profound effects because that trust ripples out. And if it doesn't, I always think that you can, you know, these thinking environments, they can be sabotaged, but at least you see what's happening. They can't be subverted. So if you're trying to ripple it out and you're coming up against barriers, at least you can see what those barriers are. You can make the decision now, is it worth trying to go under, over, around this, or do I just try and do this somewhere else? So at the moment, we're still in the, the midst, midst of a pandemic but uh, people are looking forward into the future. So there are different methods and techniques for organizations to think critically about where they wanna be uh, in the next few years, like uh, Three Horizons. So how have you used uh, Three Horizons in your own practice to help organizations visualize their future? I love Three Horizons. Um, it's a it's a great notation. So if you think about writing down musical notes, how do you, how do you, what's the notation for change? And part of the problem we have in any organization in public service in FE is we call things by certain names, which bring a whole range of expectations about what that thing is. And it's very difficult to change because we think we've got to have this, we've got to have that. I can remember a few years ago organizing an event where the word plenary kept popping up. I'm like, what? We said we wouldn't have a plenary. What are we having a plenary? Oh, no, no, we're not having a plenary. And then somebody else said plenary just because everybody thinks, oh, event, conference, plenary. Why do you want to tell people what they've just heard? Why not do something new at the end? So it's really difficult to get rid of this stubborn language. And what Three Horizons does is provide a different notation. So um, the first thing is that you would look at where you are now and you would look at what you didn't want to lose, right? And just be really clear-sighted, affirmatively critical, not cynical about 
what you don't want to lose. And then that would give you the platform to say, where do we want to be? And we do that all the time, don't we? Goal setting, vision, da, 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 da. The difference in three horizons is you don't mess about trying to put too much flesh on the bones of that third horizon, that far goal. You say what it looks like, that's 1% of your time, 1% visioning, and then 99% aligning your path to that vision. So what's really important in Three Horizons is, yeah, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, understanding what you want to keep, understanding where you want to get to, but it's the journey. And that's why it works really well with thinking environment spaces, because you're spending time looking at the journey. And you're thinking about, you know, okay, so if we do this intervention, it's sort of getting us, it's not getting us very far. Yeah, but this will get us further. But if we do this, we won't frighten too many people. And it's having, you know, those conversations about how to move one step forward, two steps back, really, but how to align, because inevitably you will have some values words in where you want to be because that's what we do we write it we laminate it we put it on the walls it's in the mission statement it's stuck on the outside of the school and then we forget to think about how we're going to do the 99% alignment in three horizons you've got the chance then to make your progress be a practice of values how do we make developing a new curriculum a practice of care, for example. How do we make T-levels a practice of equality? Let's break it down. How do we build trust in this team? So all of that is happening in the middle and the, all the things are coming together. The culture change, which is about developing the organization alongside developing the people, the relationship first stuff, which is about practices, how they impact on people, the emotional wake of practices. You don't forget where you're going. You don't give it all the time in the world. We are all, I'm sure, sick of sitting in meetings where the mission is reiterated and then you do something completely different. And we're all, it's like the emperor's new clothes. Well, how's that going to get us to here? Yeah, but it's going to assure the survival of the organization. It's the bottom line. Well, what if there was an emotional bottom line? What if our outcomes were written in terms of what's the emotional wake of that? And I think Three Horizons is a lovely framework to bring all of this thinking together. It's not scary. It can be quite visual. Um, if people want to find out more about it, Public Health Wales, so going back to public health, they have uh, produced this little online workbook. So if you just put Public Health Wales Three Horizons, it gives you all sorts of different ways of using it. It's a great process and people get it. And, uh, and they get it with some relief, I think. Like we're not just saying words now. You know, we're actually thinking about what's important. When I do this, what is the values impact of that on the people that it's going to be affecting? Everybody's interested in that. Everybody's interested in expressing the values and figuring out how to enact them. Absolutely. And I think um, certainly young, uh, younger people coming into the world of work now, uh, I think are less motivated by material rewards and would much rather do uh, work that aligns with their values. So I think this kind of um, attitude is only going to um, spread further. But I think there's a, how can we say that? I think there's a slight time delay or lag between the upper echelons of management and how they see the world and how, as I say, the, the new workforce sees the world. In public service, that is absolutely true. 
out there, there are young people, enterprising young people who are doing amazing stuff, but they're stepping outside the normal workforce. They're working, you know, portfolio working, they're doing a sort of gig economy job and setting up a social enterprise. They're working for a charity. They're just finding different ways of doing it. And I was listening to Brene Brown's um, Daring to Lead podcast this morning. And she, she talks about Gen Z, as she calls them, Generation Z. My son's one of the older end of Generation Z. I am the lost Generation X. And she talks about just how brilliant they are, you know, just doing it for themselves really, but being absolutely values led. And I, I've got the privilege of working with some great younger people, my son's friends amongst them, who they're gonna get into these organizations and they're gonna think this is not a fit for me. And sooner or later, FE has got to realize it's missing out on all this talent because it makes you ask permission of your line manager if you want to take a day off for your kid's graduation or whatever. You know, this compliance culture is ridiculous. And I'm really, really interested after, you know, we, we know the changes that are coming to FE and the desire for things to be employer led. Well, Amazon might want somebody to act as a robot and judge them on how long they can, you know, hold the bladder before they have to go to the toilet. But you know what, there are plenty of employers out there who are telling us and have been telling us for years that they want young people who can act on their initiative, have ideas, be team workers, do critical thinking. Are we going to be up for that? Is FE going to be up for that when we have organizations that privilege compliance above anything else. Quite a challenge. I cannot wait to see what my son's generation does with this world. I really can't. I think my job increasingly, it's always been about equality. But these days, when I think about like my, my mission, my world changing mission, I just want to get what I can influence to a place where my son's generation can come and pick it up and do the work. Yeah, people are rude about uh, young people sometimes, but um, from what I know of Generation X, they're probably even more um, socially aware than my generation. So I'm, I'm, I'm Gen X like you. And, um, you know, they volunteer more than in previous generations. They, they worry about things like climate change uh, much more interestingly their role models are very different from previous generations as well so previous generations might have looked up to celebrities you know footballers that kind of thing and today's generation generally looks up to their parents and their carers as their role models so i think there is a huge uh, if you like squandering um, of that in organizations probably because you can't capture social justice on a, on a balance sheet very easily so it tends to get missed, I think, by the upper echelons. So what would be your message um, to senior leaders in organisations? You know, how can they really capture that, that lightning in a bottle, if you like? I want to tell them to just stop, pause, and give themselves time to think. Barack Obama even when he was president of the United States of America, had thinking time in his diary every single day. 
learn to think with others and listen. And I would say go and read pages 74 and 75, I think it is, of Brene Brown's Dare to Lead, in which she shows a continuum between armoured leadership, defensive, competitive, and daring leadership. And it is brilliant. And if you're not a reader, then listen to her podcast. Senior leaders have all been on training courses, which, you know, have taught them how to be leaders and they're doing their best, but it's a different form of leadership. It's a different appreciation of what talent is that we need in FE now. And go and talk to your kids. Your kids will be Gen Z. Go talk to your kids, see what their vision is and learn from them. I could not have put it better myself. And uh, it's been uh, wonderful to spend this time listening to you, Dr. Lee Mycroft. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sarge. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again to Lou for sharing her insights on how we can all change communities and cultures for the better. You can find Lou on Twitter at Lou Mycroft. If you've enjoyed this episode of Universal Learning, subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts. And do feel free to rate and review it too. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you can join me for the next edition of Universal Learning. Visit our website, universallearning.education, to read transcripts of each edition and find out more about how you can put inclusion into practice for all of your learners. The music you've heard in this edition is Sinara by Blair Moon, and sound effects are by New Age Soup, both licensed under Creative Commons. Visit universallearning.education for more information.